All right, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, if you don't have a text, uh, a Bible of your own, we'll have the text up on the screens uh, behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room. Uh, if you're the type that prefers the, the physical Bible to the digital one, let me give you the slow clap and cheer you on. Uh, I'm in that category too, but we're a dying breed. Um, but they're there. All right, uh, it's okay to turn on your phone. There's many great Bible apps. We prefer the Bible app. It's free, and so if you're interested in that type, we can do that too. Um, but uh, if you don't own a Bible, uh, we would invite you to take that physical one home. Uh, we believe that, that God uses his word to teach us about himself. Like it's, the, it's actually the main way he teaches us about himself. We can look to creation, but the specific way he reveals his character and who he calls us to be and, 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 and he reveals who he is to us is through the Bible, through the scriptures. And so if you don't have one outside of this place, we would invite you to take that one home. And we believe that God will use that in a big way. And so take it home, call it yours, and we'll call it a win. All right, uh, I missed y'all last week. I wasn't here. Uh, we uh, loaded up early Thursday morning, 4 a.m. early Thursday morning last week, uh, and uh, loaded up into a passenger van, 11 folks from here, and we drove to Bucyrus, Ohio, which, if you're wondering, no, no one else knows where that is either. Um, Bucyrus, Ohio is in central Ohio, about an hour-ish north of Columbus, and so uh, we've got some church partners uh, that we that we love and, and want to see be successful there. Uh, the Roy Hughes uh, and Matt Skiles are the pastoral staff uh, at Genesis Church. It used to be two different churches, and they each had, they were each pastoring two different churches, and they combined their churches into one church called Genesis Church. And so they're doing some good stuff, and we want to see them succeed. And so we took a crew from here last weekend, a uh, little fly-by-night trip. We left Thursday morning, came back super late Sunday night, uh, and we uh, did all kinds of stuff, mostly for their building. Uh, we painted a lot of things. We spent a lot of time creating a nursery space for them. Uh, we even put a big children's ministry logo on the wall, and so it was a great trip. Uh, we did all of it, not to... Not to you know, do some projects that make us feel good about them, ourselves, but to serve them and equip them for ministry. Like, like, like that's, if you're new here, that's kind of the way we view missions. That's kind of the way we view serving others. We want to equip them to be successful instead of patting ourselves on the back. And so we did a bunch of things that, so that Matt and Roy and their church could reach young families better in their city. And so uh, we flew in, we flew out, or drove in, drove out. It's a lot, takes a lot longer than flying. Um, but we had a great time, and if you have other questions about that, don't ask me. Ask one of the other ten people that went on that trip. One, because they have their own stories. Two, because the last thing you need is to hear me talk more. All right? So ask them. I can give you a list of those people after we're done. But if you have questions about that, check them out. Like, pester them. Get them to tell their stories. Some of them, like Sydney McCann, are going to need you to, like, pester them to tell you the story. All right? But do it, because it's good for her. All right, so uh, we shut down our, uh, our Story of God series that we were working on all year long uh, for a couple of months to focus on a couple of other things. And we spent the last several weeks, the last four specifically, uh, in a little mini-series that we're calling Hashtag Gospel. Uh, the artwork is right up there. Uh, uh, and so the premise is pretty simple. We're looking at five gospel realities, things that Jesus changes in us and around us, all right, that affect the way we look at and use use social media. Now, they most assuredly affect everything else in our life, too, but during the course of the series, we're zeroing our focus and our application down specifically on how they affect social media, all right? And so um, we've had a good time so far. Uh, in week one, uh, Jesus, uh, we talked about how Jesus gives a new, uh, a new identity. If you haven't noticed by now, all these have a theme of Jesus giving us something. We tied it in a pretty little bow that way. In week one, we talked about how Jesus gives us a new identity. 
that we are declared sons and daughters of God. And when you're declared a son or daughter of God, any fame or notoriety or attention you get on Facebook, that takes a back seat, right? It takes a severe backseat. You, whether whether you, you're doing the, the Instagram fame or not, you don't need a social media friends list to give you something because your identity's already been found somewhere else. When God says, what God says is enough for you, and we don't have to go chasing it anywhere else, especially a friends list. In week two, we talked about how Jesus gives us a new community. How he gives us a new community. That, that, that social media is designed, intrinsically geared to gather us into tribes. Right? And whether that's the, the politics tribe or the favorite band tribe or the where you live tribe, it gathers us into tribes. That's what it does. Right? That's what it's built out to do. But for the follower of Jesus, you have one tribe, one community that's going to last you forever. And it ain't Facebook. It's your church family. It's your church family, and so we ought to steward our relationships well with eternity in view, right? We ought to manage those relationships with eternity in view. We ought to play the long game because all those other tribes have a shelf life. doesn't mean they're bad, but they're only temporary. And so we ought to treat them as such and treat our eternal community as if it were an eternal community. And then week three, we talked about how Jesus gives us a new wisdom. That we are given eyes to see and ears to hear, to know and to understand what is and is not pleasing to God, what does and does not make him happy, and that the follower of Jesus ought to spend their whole life, all of their days, pursuing the things that are pleasing to him and speaking truth gently and lovingly, but speaking truth into the things that don't. Does that affect social media? <laughs> yeah, it does. Absolutely it does. But in an oversaturated social media world, well, that, that's a big hill to climb. But it's a hill we need to climb because we want to protect ourselves and because we love others effectually. We want to speak into the noise and speak into the fog and love people well and see them know God too. And then last week, JB helped us understand that Jesus gives us a new liberty. That we have the freedom to use the good gifts that God has given the world. And social media is definitely in that category. No one can take our rights from us. Or to, to quote uh, Galatians chapter 1, is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It's a good gift. We should enjoy it. But the Bible is also very clear, also very clear that you're going to be a slave to whatever it is you give all of your time and all of your attention and all of your affections to. You're going to be a slave to something it's either God and his righteousness or it's something less than that. And so while no one could say, no one could stand up here and say, the Bible tells you you shouldn't do this, and the Bible tells you you shouldn't do that, and the church doesn't have the authority to say, you should stay off of Twitter. At the end of the day, your rights are sometimes something that can bite you in the backside. So take care. Take care. Be the master of things. Don't let those things be the master of you, he said. That was just the first four weeks. You all ready to look at our final gospel reality for this series? 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to pick it up in verse 16, but we're going to bounce all over the place, so be ready to move. Verse 16. From now on, therefore. Time out. 
those of you who've been here a while are giggling. Those of you who are not are a little lost. So context is everything, right? You just said the word therefore. So we got this weird conditional little thing that's happening. So everything we're about to read is based on something that was written earlier, right? That's what context is. And so let's look a paragraph before and see what that context is. Verse 11. Therefore, comma, time out. So we're we're still building something here. So look back all the way at verse 1 of chapter 5. The Apostle Paul says this, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Okay, so if you don't have much of an extensive church background, you may be a little bit lost right now, but for all of our seasoned church kids, what's, what's Paul talking about when he calls something a tent? Our bodies. He's talking about our physical bodies. That's what he's referring to when he uses the phrase t- a tent, okay? But here's the thing about tents. They're temporary. Like, you don't live in a tent forever. It's a temporary dwelling place. It's not permanent. And so Paul's saying here that our physical bodies have an expiration date. They have an expiration date. And you don't have to believe me. Just go find an old picture of yourself. Some of you aren't as pretty as you used to be. Look it around. Some of us have fared well better than others, right? I'm in the same boat. I'm in the same boat. 65 pounds, man. <laughs> Difference between me and high school me. Got a little more, more upper body strength, but nope, that's not where it all went. Paul's saying that our physical bodies have a shelf life. Our physical bodies are... They have a shelf life, that we groan in these temporary bodies. And all you have to do is pay attention to a newspaper or ask your friends how they're doing this week. We groan in these temporary bodies, longing for the day that we're going to put on the eternal one. But these aren't just throwaway bodies we got. The Bible actually teaches that we will all one day stand before God and have to give an account for how we used our bodies. That happens in verse 10. Let me show it to you. Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or what? Whether good or evil. So Paul's saying we're on the clock here. We're on the clock here, and because we're one day going to stand before God and have to give an account for how we lived, we ought to have a healthy fear of the Lord and get to work. That's what he's saying. We ought to have a healthy fear of the Lord and get to work persuading other people to follow Jesus too. That's not Paul's only point in the first 15 verses of chapter 5. He's going to spend more time talking about uh, future glories and present realities. But that is a major core piece of what he's talking about in the first 15 verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
Which means, class, we now have a very healthy bit of context to look at where we first started in verse 16. We can look at verse 16 with the right eyes now. Paul says this, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Okay, so what's the Apostle Paul saying? He's saying that whatever your activity is, whatever, uh, it doesn't matter who you're talking to, you have never, ever talked to a mere mortal. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Never. The person on the other side of the conversation always has an eternal reality. Always. According to Paul here, you're 80 to 100 years. Your neighbor's 80 to 100 years. No matter how well lived, no matter how much exercise, no matter how much philanthropy, no matter how much you enjoyed the party, your 80 to 100 years is all you're going to get, and it's only an earthly tent for a future reality. A temporary dwelling place. On a holdover stop for an eternal person. So here's the truth that we got to lock down this morning. That the window to do something about their eternal reality is a far, far shorter deal. Far shorter. Church, we cannot regard people only according to the flesh. Paul says that we regarded Christ that way once. We thought he was going to be an earthly king with an earthly kingdom, but thankfully he ignored our best hopes and won a far more eternal victory for us. A far more eternal battle. And so we regard him as only flesh no longer. We know better. We see the bigger picture now. And that leads us to verse 18. Look at it. It says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. I'm going to call a timeout right there. I know it's mid-sentence, but there's enough to unpack here in in this one little half-sentence to give it space. So reconciliation is when you bring two enemies together in peace. I'm not talking about ceasefire. I'm not talking about a begrudging treaty that we kind of signed to, to get the battle over with. No, perfect peace. Conflict is fully resolved. Fully resolved. Because the terms have been completely satisfied. That's what reconciliation is. Uh, The theological word we would use is atonement. Atonement. The parties have nothing left to be even angry about, let alone fight over, because the thing that they were angry about has disappeared. It no longer exists. It's not pushed to the sideline. It's, It's not ignored. It is swallowed up and now no longer exists. That's atonement. That's reconciliation. And here Paul says that Jesus, that Christ, reconciled us, not to to some other third party, but to himself. To himself. What does that mean? It's the gospel, right? It's the gospel, that, that we are separated from God because of our sin, that we deserve the full and final punishment for that sin. God's wrath, but God the Father sends God the Son. He puts on flesh and he dwells among us. He lives sinlessly among us. He dies on a cross in our place to pay the payment for that sin, the payment of that debt of sin that we owe. And he is resurrected as a vindication of his righteousness and as proof that the payment was made in full. He 
makes atonement. He makes atonement. The terms have been completely fulfilled, completely satisfied. The guilt is not simply ignored or pushed to the sidelines. It is swallowed up and now no longer exists. He soaked it all up. And there's no more left. And ladies and gentlemen, he brings us to himself in peace. Not begrudgingly. He didn't sign some peace fire or ceasefire. He didn't sign some ceasefire to, 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 to overlook the junk and finally just get this fight over with. The thing that separated the two parties now no longer exists because it has been swallowed up. Atonement has been made. And this is the greatest watershed moment in the entire history of the universe. All of history. Because you're either in the group of those who have been reconciled to Jesus by Jesus or you're not in the group of those who have been reconciled to Jesus by Jesus. There's no middle ground here. There may be people who are in the process of, of processing through or thinking through what it is they do and actually don't believe. You may be steps closer to being reconciled. But at some point in this process, a decision has been made. At some point in this process, people have moved from one category to the other. You may not be able to pinpoint the exact moment that it happened, but at some point in the process, that shift occurred. Everybody in the history of the planet is either those who have been reconciled to Jesus by Jesus or those who have not. Those who have not. And so we are talking about one of the most massive realities ever. To be reconciled, to be brought to Peace to the holy and righteous God, the eternal king of the cosmos, has eternity-shaping ramifications. But Paul only used that as the bridge to get to something else, because we stop mid-sentence. We stop mid-sentence. Kind of uses it as a launching point to get to what he really wants to talk about, so let's read it again. Verse 18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and what's those words? And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He what? Think through this for a second. Follower of Jesus, he, he gave us the ministry, or we could say the responsibility of reconciling the rest of the world to himself. Are you serious? Jesus says, you're on my team now. So go to all the people who are still my enemies, proclaim who I am and what I have done, and bring them back to me in peace. Bring them back to me in peace. Go to them and proclaim to them the peace that I have accomplished through my shed blood, and bring them back to me reconciled. Look at verse 19. 
that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and, and entrusting to us the message of uh, reconciliation. So there's not much of a difference between the phrase gave us and entrusted to us, at least in the way uh, that Paul uses it. But we live in a world that has this nasty tendency of taking words and absolutely robbing them of their original meaning. Have you ever, have you experienced that in our world? No, you haven't? Okay, just me? All right. The phrase gave us is going to carry all of the connotation that Paul wants, but if we're not careful, we have a tendency to read it in a, in a less than stellar way, okay? Right? This isn't some tchotchke on the shelf, some trophy that God has given us to prove to us that he loves us. This is responsibility that we're talking about right, right here, right? He handed to us, entrusted to us, the ministry of reconciliation. The fulfillment of his mission has been placed in our laps. My lap, your lap, if you know him. Don't, don't mishear me, though. Don't hear something I'm not saying, because God is not handcuffed. God is not handcuffed to our success or failure. He's not pacing around in the throne room of heaven, wringing his hands, going, I really hope they come through on this. He's not deeply worried that we won't fulfill our calling. The eternal and sovereign Lord of the cosmos is not beholden to our ability to achieve anything. So, so what is going on here then? I've got young kids in my house right now and if I give them a chore to do it has never ever been because I desperately needed their teamwork to get it done right have you ever asked a three-year-old to pick up and put away anything those of you who are laughing no those of you who don't haven't gotten there yet all right let me walk through it if, in case you, you're not familiar with the circumstances first you need to explain it to them at a minimum of eight times Minimum. It, it could be well more than that, but it's going to be at least eight times that you're going to have to say, pick up the thing and put it away. Pick up the thing and put it away. Pick up the thing and put it away. All right? And no matter how hard or often you point, they can't ever seem to see the item in question. Am I wrong? Is it just me? Okay. Uh, and then once they finally realize, oh, it's that thing they want me to pick up, you're going to have to re-explain that it's, to, that it's to, like put the thing away instead of just pick the item up because somehow they've forgotten by now. All right? And then once you finally get to the point that they have seen the object, understand the issue, and are now acting on what you've told them to do, you're about to be witness to the slowest walk in the history of mankind up the stairs to put the item away. It doesn't matter that they broke the sound barrier running through the house to get a snack a moment before this. The slowest stair walk in the history of stair walks. There's never been one single time in the history of the Woodard household where the chore got done more efficiently because the three-year-old was involved. Not once. Not once. But I love my kids. And I'm playing the long game in their character development. And even though it would be far more efficient for me to just pick the darn thing up and put it away myself, I'm growing them, pushing them towards something better. Right? Even though I love them and completely and fully now, I'm aiming them at a much, much better future. Hear me, church. God does not need your help to reconcile the world to himself. Not one bit. 
not one bit. You are the toddler who's only halfway listening. I'm the toddler that's only halfway listening, but he loves you, and he's invited you into his work, and he's playing the long game in your character development. He's patiently enduring the explanations and the re-explanations and pointing at the same thing for the 30th some odd time. Waiting for you to actually act on what is best for you all along. And even though he could have already done it on his own by now, he loves us and he has entrusted to us this ministry of reconciliation that he's got. He's entrusted to you and I the responsibility of proclaiming and inviting others into his kingdom. And that leads us to verse 20 for the morning. Therefore, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul calls us ambassadors ambassadors we speak on behalf of jesus there are a couple of things about ambassadors that would probably be helpful to point out this morning number one ambassadors don't live at home they live far away from home by definition right an ambassador that just hung out in their home country would be a a bad ambassador they're they're sent on mission somewhere else secondly ambassadors represent the interests of their home country to others An ambassador that ignores the commands of the sovereign that sent them and just goes along with whatever his host country would like to do, that's a bad ambassador, right? So how do we act as faithful ambassadors? Well, Paul actually tells us in in the very next sentence. He models that for us. He says, we implore you on behalf of Christ. We, uh, We implore you. We earnestly plead or beg with you. Be reconciled to God, he says. We need to remember for a second, who's he talking to right now? Who's this letter written to? A church. The church at Corinth. Which means Paul is assuming that most of the people reading this letter know Jesus. And yet, and yet he is still speaking the gospel and still bringing the gospel's call to bear on those who are his listeners. Be reconciled to God. Paul's always looking to the eternal concern. Always. He doesn't regard people according to the flesh any longer. He knows better than that. He knows he's on the clock. He's got a holy understanding that he's going to have to stand before God and give an account for how he used his time. And so he's working today to bring as many people as possible today. That's his aim. So what does any of this have to do with the way I use social media? Sure, I've talked about gospel stuff instead of Facebook a lot. How does this affect the way I use Instagram? I've been promising you all series long, one big idea and one frank statement, right? So what's our big idea for the week? I quoted an author named C.S. Lewis earlier. You probably didn't catch it because I did it in passing and I didn't give him credit at the time. But allow me to, uh, well, to put him on better display now. I've got a, a quote for you from a book that he wrote called The Weight of Glory. And it's lengthy, but it'll hit the nail right on the head. I think the sound guy's got it up on the screen. Hey, look at there. It says, it may be possible... For each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter, it is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. 
It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. Notice the lowercase g's there, all right? And so he's not talking about, you, know, you get it, all right? It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may be one day a creature which, if you saw it now, would be, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. That's the earthly tent versus the heavenly glorified bodies that we're talking about earlier, right? The glorified bodies will be glorified, right? It's going to be something otherworldly and way better than what we see in front of us right now. All right, so back to Lewis. He says, all day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the all and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind. And it is, in fact, the merriest kind which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity must be real and costly love with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippancy parodies merriment. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, he's talking about the Lord's Supper. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Lewis's point here is to say that no action done in the company of another soul is ever, ever, ever just about that action. It's building to something and it's working to something and it has eternal ramifications. You have never talked to a mere mortal. That everything we do plays into eternity somehow. Yes, even the really mundane everyday stuff, and yes, even dumb things like social media. You've never talked to a mere mortal. The greatest empires this world has ever seen or ever will see will be forgotten one day in the ash heap of history. They will rise, they will fall, and every one of them will ultimately be forgotten. But your neighbor has eternity at their feet. Your neighbor has eternity at their feet, and that eternity either falls on one side of the greatest watershed in history or the other. They are those that have been reconciled to Jesus by Jesus, or they are those who have not. One side or the other, there's no middle ground. There's no middle ground. And if you are a follower of Jesus, the Bible is absolutely crystal clear that God has placed the responsibility of being an ambassador to them in your lap. In your lap. Now, wait a second, Woodard, that sounds a little too harsh. You can't lay all that on us this morning. Yeah, it, it does sound too harsh, especially in the culture we live in, which is why it's with a pastoral heart that it's time to give you our frank statement for the morning. The Great Commission. The call to make disciples of all nations, other followers of Jesus from everywhere else. The Great Commission is the most noble and adventurous calling that has ever, ever been cast. 
Nothing comes close to it. And platforms like Facebook and Twitter have shrunk the world down to almost nothing in comparison to the generations that came before us. It has shrunk the world so far down that we can touch people on the other side of the planet that the generations coming before us never had the opportunity to fulfill. Don't you dare waste that opportunity. Don't waste it. I beg you, don't putz away the greatest opportunity of fulfilling the great commission this world has ever seen. Don't do it. It's sitting at our feet. Don't waste it away with satiating and serving and satisfying ourselves. That doesn't mean that you've got to be all humdrum about it. By all means, play. Enjoy. JB talked last week about how this is a good gift from God. We should enjoy it. Lewis, in that quote before, talked about it. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn, he says. Have a great time on social media. It is a good gift from our good God, but we are on the clock. We're on the clock here. And we're going to have to stand and give an account before God for how we use the opportunity. We better do something about it. Use it to your advantage. Don't waste your effort making much of yourself and temporary kingdoms. If the greatest empires in this world has ever known will be forgotten, what you build online for your platform is nothing. It's less than dust. Don't build you. It won't end well. Look for ways to treat it as the tool that it is to help you achieve what I hope is most important to you this morning. Imploring others to be reconciled to God. Good ambassadors don't exist to make a name for themselves. Their identity is found in who they've been declared to be. Good ambassadors don't exist to prefer the temporary communities above their home. They're there for work and one day that work will be over. Good ambassadors carry a needed wisdom to read between the lines so they're not deceived by the political games of their host country. Good ambassadors don't take the job to get political benefits. They instead use their benefits to serve others. And good ambassadors always keep their primary responsibilities at the forefront of their attention, never allowing themselves to stray outside of their responsibility. Jesus gives us a new identity. He gives us a new community. He gives us a new wisdom. He gives us a new liberty. And church, he gives us a new mission. He gives us a new mission. So how do we respond to God's word this morning? How does the gospel of Jesus Christ apply to those who, like myself, have been guilty at times of using social media to build my brand and my own kingdom and my own platform instead of God's? How does it apply to those of us who, like myself, have been quick to use social media as a way to to satiate myself or distract myself instead of Great Commission purposes? Because I'm guilty of that. Is anybody in here that's not? How does the gospel come to bear on us? If social media is a tool, what exactly am I using it to build? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God today. You press into him. You take a good long look at the social media habits that you have and your pent of sin where you find it. And you, you lean into the reality that he knew about your online sin even as he went to the cross. I know that's a weird thing to wrap our head around, but the Bible teaches clearly that he not only knew about it, but it was laid on him. 
Like that sin specifically was laid on him. That's what Paul's getting at in verse 21. We didn't spend a lot of time talking about it, but he says, He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Bible teaches clearly that God placed your sin and my sin on his back. And he paid for it specifically in that moment. Not some generic idea of sin, your sin, including the online stuff. So you repent of sin where you see it, and you lean into his work for you. It's not just that he took your sin, the Bible also teaches in verse 21, that he gave us his righteousness as well. His righteousness so that if you're a Christian, you are seen by God, not as somebody who's just been made neutral, had your sins washed. No, you are, you are walking in the righteousness of Jesus himself. It's been handed to you. The debt has been paid in full. Reconciliation is complete. Atonement has been made. So we repent of the sin and begin walking as you've been called to walk. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have a couple of leaders up front here to talk and pray with you if that would serve you well this morning. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus today, man, I'm glad you chose to hang out with us. Seriously, that, there's probably a lot more fun places you could hang out on a Sunday morning. We like you. Keep asking questions. Keep pressing in. Listen, you can respond to God's word today too. Like Paul, I want to say to you, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled this morning. What does that look like? It looks like you repenting of your sin and calling on Jesus as Lord. Man, I'd love to walk you through that. Maybe today's the day that you're ready to take that step. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We've got some other plans after we're done here. But right now, let's all respond to God's word today because that's what that time's for. God, you're good to us. Thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for 2 Corinthians 5. And my hope is that we feel the weightiness of our calling this morning but also the freedom and the equipping that you give us. If I see my role correctly, I am terrified of it. But if I see you correctly, I'm given wings. Oh, let me be both. Hold my feet to the fire here. Give me eternal eyes to see that, that, that we're not just dealing with our 80 to 100 years of flesh here. No, there's coming a day long after that that'll last forever. Let me work today for a future to come. But God, my frame is weak. And I am incapable of the service. I am the three-year-old who doesn't understand what to do. And probably does it wrong the first time I try. But you love me with a fatherly affection. You call me yours and you work patiently by my side, drawing me to where you want me to be. God, I don't want courage outside of you, but when I see you, I'm giving courage. Help me walk in obedience. God, if there's anybody here who doesn't know you yet, would you make yourself known to them this morning? Draw men and women to yourself today. God, would you save people? You have paid the debt. Draw them to yourself. God, in your name we pray.